0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the author of a fascinating new book titled Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. It's a comprehensive look at how the U.S. government has viewed the airline industry going back to its beginnings. In the news, the NTSB chairwoman says that the increase in near-miss aviation incidents is a, quote, clear warning sign that the U.S. aviation system is sharply strained. The FAA announces it will appoint an aviation rulemaking committee to examine pilot mental health. Meanwhile, the NTSB preliminary report puts the blame on the Hawker pilots for hitting a landing Cessna Mustang. An American Airlines regional airline offers cargo pilots a possible $250,000 bonus for making the switch. And United Airlines adjusts their frequent flyer program. We also have an Australia Desk report. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 774 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a business jet pilot, a CFI, spent 10 years as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good
1: evening. It's uh, really nice to be here, and I'm not going to talk about the weather here in Chicago, even though it was a balmy 61 degrees today, and the colors were just gorgeous, but I'll just leave it
0: at that. All right. I'm glad you didn't talk about the weather. No. Also with us is Brian Coleman. He's our former associate producer and co-host, now field contributor. Of course, Brian hosts... The Journey is the Reward podcast with our main man, Micah. Hey,
2: Max and Rob, and I guess guests that we're going to be introducing next, since we have some absenteeism today.
0: We do, we do. Uh, Both uh, David Vanderhoof and Max Trescott are off this episode. A variety of different different reasons, all of them good. We hope to have them back uh, next time, um, because uh, we miss them already.
1: Well let's not go that far. Okay, I he's mean, pushing it, huh? They're going to get a big head if we do that. So, okay, I, I'll I'll be quiet now. I'm sorry.
0: Our guest this episode is policy expert and Vanderbilt law professor Ganesh Sitaraman. He's written a new book titled Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. It's actually a fascinating book that has a lot of detail about the airline industry. We're going to talk about that, but... In the book, he writes about how our flying system has become so terrible and what we could do to make flying better for everyone. Ganesh uh, takes the reader through the history of air travel, how it used to operate in the United States, what changed to give us the system we have today, and how our leaders could choose to fix flying in order to serve more Americans more efficiently with fewer federal bailouts and headaches. Ganesh is director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. He's the author of numerous books, previously a senior advisor to Elizabeth Warren for her presidential campaign, and he's a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, also the FAA's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee. Ganesh, welcome to the Airplane Geeks
3: podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today. And Ganesh,
2: with that interview, I really feel as though I'm um, a slacker here. So, well done for all that you've accomplished.
3: <laughs> well, thanks.
0: Yeah, the the, uh, the book is. Um, I found it to be uh, fascinating from the standpoint that I I think when I saw the title, and uh, that formed uh, an impression in my mind as to you know, what the book was going to be about and what it was going to cover and things like that. But it's much more expansive than that. It covers a, a great deal, all of basically the, the history of airlines, air transportation in the United States, and um, all of the steps that brought us to where we are today. But uh, Ganesh, I think it's worthwhile to start off by baselining people on thoughts as to flying. What is miserable about flying? I mean, we we all complain about it. We complain about the passenger experience, but is the public at large dissatisfied? And what is the evidence we have that it is as miserable as many of us think it is?
3: Well, when I say miserable in the book and title, I really mean two things. One is the misery of the passenger experience, which we all interact with in so many different ways, whether that's how many different fare classes there are, which always seem to be ever-expanding, the fact that you have to pay extra for picking your seat or checking an extra bag, all these proliferating junk fees that we've seen over the years, or just the fact that you have to connect through Atlanta or Dallas to get to where you want to go uh, and find yourself running from you know one side of the airport, uh, what seems to be like a half marathon to get to the other side in twenty seven minutes before your flight's gonna leave because they're you know literally the farthest apart gates. I mean, these are the little miseries that we all deal with, let alone lost baggage and not getting compensated when you're canceled or delayed, and all of these kinds of things. Um, but I also mean misery uh, to mean the experience of the industry. And I use a slightly different word in the book because I really couldn't help myself. I say the turbulence of the industry. (laughs) Um, uh, Maybe not the best uh, uh, joke, but- No, it's appropriate. Appropriate word, I think. And and that's that the industry is really in uh, a shocking place if you think about what we as a society might want out of basic transportation infrastructure, which is we've had a kind of boom and bust cycle. Years where the industry is doing great, then a big demand shock followed by bailouts or taxpayer support programs. I mean that's the story of 9/11 and before and after. It's the story of COVID, you know, making tons of money before one one airline CEO said he thought they'd never lose money again. And then you have COVID, uh, demand plummets and you need taxpayer support to prevent a catastrophic disaster in the industry of the layoffs of of thousands of people or furloughing of thousands of people on uh, in the airlines. And so, you know, uh, to me, the fact that we have that kind of system, plus we have a system now where if you live in smaller cities, mid sized cities, some big cities even, you know, you've seen de- real declines in air service. And that's a really bad thing if what you want is to start a business in that city or see a lot of economic growth or have tourists come visit or even family members come visit. Um, you know, air service is really essential for our communities in a modern world, and I think that's a real downside too. So, to me, the misery is is both. It's at the micro level, all the things we interact with and, and don't like, and at the macro level, it's the problems that the industry itself faces as a public service that we all use. Ganesh,
1: having worked for one of the early deregulated airlines back in the uh, <clears throat> last century uh i i wonder did were people as unhappy with air travel back when it was regulated uh, prior to 1979 as they are now or maybe it's not an apples and apples kind of comparison
3: it's a good question and i'm not sure it's apples and apples and and i'm also not sure even today's version so if you were to just you know ask people in a poll sometimes i get asked you know no nobody's really that unhappy. We all still keep flying um, well, that's not really an argument because on on the one hand we we have to i mean if you want to get from washington d c to Seattle, what are you going to do? Walk oh maybe you take maybe you you know take the Oregon trail in a covered wagon or take a train. wait we don't have high speed trains going there you know the options are quite limited so People are really stuck, even if they don't like the system. The fact that we keep using it doesn't really tell us much. Um, and I think one of the challenges in comparing before and after is, is that it was really different. You know, one of the nice things about the earlier system was that there was a real race to the top on competition for service. Um, so, you know, people in the, in the 1970s who were pushing for deregulation criticized this, they didn't like how good the service was in the airplanes. And it's, it's, to be fair, it got to be quite extreme. I mean, they were putting piano bars in the airplane, you know, not, not, not in the airport, in the airplane itself. I mean, that's a pretty extreme thing, but, but that was an objection to, to flying. It it was an indicator that, you know, good service was bad. This wasn't working. And now we have, you know, really the opposite, which is, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, fit one of those kids' little hand keyboards, you know, on your lap in the seat because uh, because they're so tight now. I mean, it's really the what we're at the opposite extreme,
2: right? But you you talk about the industry right after deregulation. You also have possibly the beginning of the race to the bottom with People's Express, right? So yes, things were very different. It was a much more, I'd say, luxurious travel experience when the airlines were regulated. But shortly thereafter, it went south really fast. And not saying anything bad about People's Express, because I flew them often and really enjoyed the experience, but I also enjoyed paying $99 getting from Newark to Los Angeles.
3: Yeah, th- there is a big there's a big shift that happens with Deregulation that I think is is hard. One of, one of the points I make in the book is that if you're going to evaluate whether this was a good policy or a bad policy, and whether things are better or worse, you both have to think about where are we temporally. You know, are, are we looking at 1983 when you could fly People Express? Are you looking at 1989? You couldn't fly them anymore. Or you're looking at today. Nobody even knows what people express was if you're under 50 years old, right? I mean, there's a big shift that happens. How how should we think about that? And then the other thing is, you know, what metrics should we think about? You know, do we care about the fact that, you know, Toledo, Ohio used to have significant service in the 1970s and now has service from zero of the big four airlines? I mean, is that something we should care about? Um, I, I think we should care about geographic... Uh, service and access. Um, but, but if someone doesn't care about that, well, th- then you might evaluate the system differently. Um, so I think there are some tensions in how we think about you know, what makes it good or bad. Uh, you know, prices, as you mentioned, are one of the things that always gets talked about the most. But you know, one of the things we found is first that people don't usually mention is that you know, prices were going down during regulation pretty consistently, kept going down after deregulation at basically the same rate the whole way. Um, if you're looking at average prices and that really what happened is we saw a reshaping of where, where prices are cheaper and more expensive. And that was competitive routes versus less competitive routes. Uh, and you know, today we're in a place where there's so much concentration in the industry, both overall, you know, the top four airlines have a larger market share than they did in 1977 and in a place where particular airports are extremely concentrated, uh, and that those things mean, you know, lots of downsides for consumers because when there isn't competition, you know, you don't get the benefits of price as much.
0: Ganesh, in the book, you talk about how there were three phases of uh, commercial aviation as viewed by the government. Uh, Maybe you can take us just through that a little bit, then we can kind of focus on this sort of inflection point when when deregulation came to pass.
3: So in the book, I I frame out kind of three big periods. Um, I, I might... For our conversation, call it four, um, because we're with we're with the real geeks here who wanna who wanna break this stuff down. Um, so I think the first the first category is really the early years of flight, you know, from the Wright brothers through the 1930s, and their policies really defined by airmail subsidies, and it's really about getting us to a place where air travel is a real thing. Um, and then you get in the second period, which which is really in in our modern kind of organization. The really the first period of a slightly matured industry. And, and that's from the 30s to the 70s. And I think of this as a kind of stable, reliable system. And what Congress did in the 30s was they wanted to ensure that there would be air travel to lots of places in the country, that they didn't need to subsidize the airlines heavily, like they had been, um, that there wouldn't be bailouts and bankruptcies at kind of mass rates, because they had had some experience with that in the 20s and 30s. and. They wanted to, as a result, they built the system on a kind of public utility model, which is what it applied in other transportation sectors. And the reason for that was this is an essential service, uh, important for a lot of inputs commercial, uh, civic, communication, and something that we want to have in lots of places in the country. And the public utility model works best that way when you have an industry that has high capital costs, when there's a lot of network effects, when there's economies of scale, uh, when it's not necessarily going to be as competitive as say, opening a restaurant or selling coffee mugs. So they created a system, the Civil Aeronautics Board was established, and they would allocate routes to different uh, airlines to fly from one city to another. And the airlines got some really high volume, great profitable routes, and they got some low volume routes to smaller cities. Um, They regulated prices as well. And that was the system. And it operated for about 40 years. And in that time, Volumes of people flying went up. Prices were going down pretty consistently. Uh, Airlines moved, the big ones moved away from being subsidized. Um, We moved into the jet age uh, in that time period and then into this era of real service competition by the 70s. And so that was really the next big, big period. And what happened in the 70s is a lot of people looked at this system of regulated competition and said, this looks like a cartel. This doesn't look like competition. Um, and and you know what if we got rid of this what if we moved to a free market and if we move to purely market competition we can imagine having dozens of airlines flying efficiently. One person even predicted there would be up to two hundred airlines sustainably operating efficiently around the country. And all we have to do is let them fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and to charge whatever they want, and it'll be great. And and that was a pretty good pitch, right? I mean, that sounds like a great deal. But what ended up happening is we didn't end up in the kind of dream world that the deregulatory advocates wanted, where the industry ended up in the 80s, I think was a lot more like the Hunger Games. It was like a period of just cutthroat competition between these airlines. And, you know, Brian mentioned People Express. It's like this is a airline coming in without unionized workers, offering no frills, fares, only peanuts, you know, was, was one of the big things at the time. Uh, that, that some of the airlines uh, started. That's why we have the peanuts on the, on the airplanes um, was, was part of that story. And you know you have these airlines, New York Air, People Express, a whole bunch of them coming in, offering these cheap fares. Um, and that's great in, in the short term. But then the big airlines fight back and they're undercutting them on price. They're sandwiching flights on both sides of the, of, the, of the low-cost carriers' flights. They're pushing them out of business, jacking up the prices. There's dozens of mergers and bankruptcies. And by the end of the 80s, we're actually back to a consolidated system that's just as consolidated as it was during regulation, except with no regulation. Hmm. And so we go from a regulated oligopoly to an unregulated oligopoly. And I think over the decades we've really entered an almost a fourth era, which is a kind of more monopolistic capitalism, where there's just so little competition now, um, you know even less than at the end of the '80s, uh, that you really have very few choices in where you fly and how you fly. And there's studies showing the airlines are even owned by big holdings of shareholders that are the same, and that that's anti-competitive and raises prices too. So, you know, in a weird way, we're back to this kind of almost cartel-like system held by common owner shareholders. Um, And and so that's a very different world than we've been in in the past. And it's this world of boom and bust cycles and too big to fail, too important to fail kind of bailouts and. I think that's that's where we are now. So, so that's sort of how I see the big arc of where the history of public policy uh, has been and how it's shaped the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, as I was uh, reading through that history in your book, I found myself uh, changing my opinion as to whether or not people made or governments or, you know, whatever that was in power made uh, bad decisions along the way, or if it was just kind of an evolutionary sort of thing where the smart decision today may not be the smart decision a few decades down the line. I found myself switching back and forth, you know, but I think maybe it was a sort of a, a combination. I mean, it doesn't feel like there's someone to blame really for where we are. It's just sort of this long evolutionary process.
3: Well, I I think there is someone to blame for where we are. And, and the someone is a group and they're called Congress. Um, and, and the reason why I blame Congress is because even if where we ended up has been an evolutionary process, you know, it's really the job of the people in Congress who are passing the laws and governing the airline system through the FAA, through the Department of Transportation, uh, to fix the problems in the system that, that we see and to be, be thoughtful about that. And I think they've really not done a good job of that um, over time. And part of why I wrote the book was to get people thinking about this, because, you know, in my view, where where we're likely to end up is another set of bailouts of the airlines or taxpayer support problems. And who knows when it will be five years, 10 years, 15 years, but it'll happen again. And when that happens again, uh, you know, they say, um, you know, fool me once Shame on me, fool me twice you know this kind of thing like shame on us at this point like we, we need to I think I got that wrong actually but in yeah, any case but we know how it goes. Shame, on, yeah. sh- shame on shame yeah. on me really um, yeah. but but uh, but but you get the point is we really need to I think when the next crisis comes actually not just say hey here's here's a bunch of money um, and some slight strings on it, but maybe we don't want to have a system where we keep going through this problem mm. over and over again and and that to me is the conversation I'd like to open.
2: You're talking about Congress being to blame here. Don't you think, though, that the general public is really to blame as well? Because they're the ones that are supporting the airlines that are creating a fairly miserable system. And I always question, should this be regulated? I and mean, is this really a government problem to solve or is it a
3: capitalist problem to solve? It's a great question, Brian. So so I think there's a couple, a couple of challenges here. So, so the first one is... If you're doing the political problem, which is where you started, and then I'll come to the the government versus capitalism problem. So on the political problem, I don't think it's the fault of uh, passengers, um, except in, in maybe one respect, which I give people a lot of uh, leeway on. And that's, you know, if you're a passenger, um, what, like I said, what what choice do I have to get from Washington to Seattle or Washington to, to San Francisco? You, know, you can't walk. It's going to take you a week to drive. You really it, the idea that this is competitive in the sense of like a restaurant that's serving you bad quality food that you don't like you just stop going they go under but there's a hundred other restaurants you know in the, in the city right that's just not the case here in in many cases there's only one game in town maybe there's two um, maybe there's three but there're limited times there's there's a lot of restrictions in this area and that brings us um, so so that's the first part I, I don't think we should blame consumers in the sense of you know you could just go somewhere else. The second part is politically; it's hard to blame consumers, passengers. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I don't. I don't have a, a personal lobbyist um, on my on my individual payroll who live, works for me in Washington. Um, I don't really know many passengers who do either. But but that's part of the problem. We're all individuals who are very diffuse around the country. We've got lives. We've got things to do. We're all doing different things. Um, we don't have those lobbyists and. You know, if you're in the airline industry, you actually do. You have a lot of people who are lobbyists. You spend a lot of money and effort thinking very strategically about how to influence members of Congress. And so even if members of Congress feel like, this might be a popular issue, people might be interested, well, if the industry pushes really hard, they may not do anything about it. And that's a place where, you know, I think to the extent that I think there's a little bit of blame, tiny bit for all of us, it's that we're actually not yelling at our members of Congress enough to go do something to fix this problem and fix the things that we don't like. Um, because Congress people are responsive to the public. It's just a lot harder for us to show our voice than it is for the industry lobbyists to show up.
1: You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I agree with all of that. I I, I think that I don't think there's a black and white answer to this issue any more than I think that it's a black and white uh, answer to probably any of the problems that that we have. But I mean, Congress, they are responsible to the to the people that to put them in office, absolutely. But how many people uh, will actually make the effort to, even if, if, if uh, you know, I'm part of the National Business Aviation Association, and every so often some big issue comes out, and they'll they'll send out a warning, a you know, all hands on deck kind of thing, and sometimes they'll even include a, a form that says, "Hey, write to your elected members of Congress and tell them." This or that we don't want that or we do want this, but short of practically giving people all of the tools to do the job, most people will not pick up the phone. They will not send an email. They will not. They'll say, "Oh man, yeah. I, oh, I, no, I don't have time for that." Uh,
3: and that's exactly my point. And that's why I don't blame people very much. I said only a tiny, tiny bit. And the reason is because you're not going to do that. And that's and that's the thing we know in political science is that. Diffuse groups of people don't have much influence in the political process compared right, to concentrated interest groups. And that's a kind of consistent finding. Brian, go ahead, sorry.
2: No, I apologize for stepping on you here. But they can vote by not buying a ticket with whatever airline. And if enough people don't buy a ticket, it's going to change because that airline's going to go out of business.
3: And that's the difference, I think, is what's happened is we're not in that world, right? And, and where we are is a place where, you know, what what are you going to do if you need to fly somewhere and there's no options for you? There's only one option. You're stuck. Sure. You know you want to get to Atlanta from most cities. You got to take Delta. <laughs> like there's only one game in town if you're going to Atlanta. If I want to go to certain places, I have to connect on one airline. There's no option. I'm, and I'm not going to drive. It takes too long. Can't bike or swim or walk. Um, and so that's the problem on the competition argument. And there's real structural reasons why this is different from restaurants and mug manufacturers and people who make coffee tables or, or anything else. Um, and, and that difference is that this is an industry that's that's not that has core dynamics that are never going to make it competitive. And that's the fundamental thing that people in the industry even understood in the 70s and that the deregulators pushed back on and then admitted they were wrong about, you know, by the end of the 80s, massive economies of scale, barriers to entry, network effects that all push towards concentration and benefit bigness. All of those things mean that competition is hard, because if you really want to compete with Delta, you need to not just have one airplane with a couple of flights. You need to have a whole fleet, and you need to compete everywhere in the country in order to be a real player. That's very, very hard to do. And, and part of that is also not something you can solve by more deregulation. And the reason is because there are fixed resources that are also very constrained. So you, know, you could build a few more airports, we could build a few more runways, but at the end of the day, you know we have, we have real traffic controllers here on on uh, you know <laughs> uh, happy to talk to. But you, you can't have planes crashing into each other um, when they're landing or taking off, and and that's a real constraint on congestion that has to be coordinated. And that's a barrier also. It means that free competition in the way of let's all just create restaurants on one street and see who survives and who doesn't. You know you can have a hundred restaurants on a street. You can't have a hundred planes deciding they're going to land at the exact same time and that congestion means there's restrictions that has to be governed in some way and and all of those things together i think put us in a place where competition is not going to work in a way that is not regulated somehow and the question is what's the way we're going to do that and and i agree with rob that nothing's black and white to me the whole world here is about trade offs you know what do we want a little bit more of this a little bit more of that we're going to give up something here or there i think we've gone too far in the direction of letting consolidation, concentration happen, abandoning a lot of cities, allowing too many proliferations of fares and fees and all this other stuff. And I think there are things we could do to rein that in a bit.
0: So if we did have the ear of our elected officials, what should we be telling them? What um, do we want them, or what should they be thinking about in order to, to change this situation? Do we want to tell them or ask them to, to consider re-regulating the industry and create a, a new CAB or, or something less than that? What are your thoughts?
3: So in the book, I give a whole bunch of different options. And, you know, I, like I said, I think to me, the question is there's trade-offs in every direction. And so, you know, for different people, it's going to be different based on their views. I'll give you three principles that are mine to start with, and then a couple of specific ideas that I think hopefully for a lot of people are things we could jointly agree on, whatever your views of the broader principles are. Um, one is, you know, no more flyover country. I don't think we should have a system that doesn't ensure access to a lot of medium-sized or smaller cities and regions. And so I think we want a system that does a much better job than the current version that we have of that.
0: So you mean providing air service to?
3: Yeah, to, to all parts of the country and, and not just, you know, the tiniest town. You know, if you're Cody Wyoming gets essential air service support you know population 10,000 Cheyenne Wyoming state capital population like 65 or so thousand doesn't get that support um, and they have to guarantee the revenue to the airlines to provide them with a flight a day and you know the, the city's going to pay the airline effectively to to serve them in that context. Um, I, I don't think as a policy matter as a country we should we should have that be something that's a burden for for cities, I think we should say this is just a a, a utility like service. If you're, you know, reasonable size city, you should have some service. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of one. And there's different ways we could accomplish that, which we can talk about. Second principle: no bailouts, no bankruptcies. And and I think there, you know, I want there to be a reliable, profitable, stable airline industry. Because I think that's good for everyone in the country. I think it's good for consumers. I think it's good for businesses. I think it's good for cities. I, that is what I want, and I don't want a system where you have, you know, to, to Brian's point, like let them go bankrupt. I actually don't want airlines going bankrupt, um, because I think that's bad for society. If we have that, it's bad for the workers. It's bad for communities. I think a better approach is, you know, how do we do that? And I think there's ways we can talk about that. One very specific one is, you know, airlines should have to have a plan for what's going to happen when there's a big demand shock. We, we know this happens. And it's not just there's a big weather event, and they should have a plan for that too in you know, high winds in Dallas or whatever storm hits in Atlanta um, or Chicago in the winter, right? They should have plans for that too. Uh, but you know we've had multiple experiences now with different kinds of big shocks, the kind where people aren't going to fly for six months, not going to fly for a year. Well, what's the plan for that? they should have to prepare those plans in advance we should have the regulators review that and make sure they're taking it seriously um, you know we could have you can imagine having a rainy day fund you know the, there should be some put aside to say hey we know this is going to happen we shouldn't be firing all the employees when that happens and we also shouldn't be asking taxpayers for a whole bunch of money but we recognize we have an obligation to continue service you know for this industry um so so that's another thing we could think of a kind of rainy day fund and a and then my third principle is is more fair and transparent pricing um and i think we need to really simplify the number of fare codes have a much simpler system around pricing and that's going to mean less uh let's call it dynamism maybe in the pricing system that the airlines have uh but a lot more certainty transparency and clarity for for consumers and i think that'll be you know i think that's a a good direction as well
0: hmm. I can't offhand think of an analogy, another industry that has similar kind of structure to it where we've taken this approach or some other
3: approach. Oh, I'll, g- I'll, g- I'll give you lots of examples, oh, historically good, good. and some at, at present to different degrees. You know, and this is actually really where the book started uh, was you know me and some colleagues were writing a textbook um, in a field that was once called public utilities regulation then it was called regulated industries law. Way before that, it was called public service corporations. And this was a whole field that was uh, one of the most important in law for, you know, really hundreds of years um, until the 1970s, and then it really collapsed. And it turns out that in transportation, energy, telecommunications, banking, a lot of similar policy tools were used to govern these industries, railroad, airlines, maritime shipping, telegraph, telephones. Uh, oil and gas pipelines, electricity, your local utilities, you know water sewer, that kind of stuff. Um, banking. And, and the reason why is these were all industries that didn't quite work the way as regular manufactured goods. They were kind of core services, there were inputs to a lot of other things, essential to commerce, communications, and so on. and, um, and so people recognized that these businesses were different than other ones, and they imposed a lot of these kind of rules. To try to address these situations, so just to give you one example, um, you know, one of the things that existed in the in the telephone era started there, but also in in you can see it in the postal service era, you can see it in your local utility is the idea of a universal service within a geographic area, and so you know, a utility will have to serve everyone in that area, and they're also a monopoly; they're granted this power to only serve. They're the only game in town, and and there's good reason for that. And say your electric utility, you actually don't want ten wires coming to the front of your house. Um, your house, your yard would just be a disaster. Like you'd never see the sky. Like it'd be a total mess. Uh, and so we have one, but the problem is it's a monopoly then, and they're gonna price gouge you and give you bad service. And so we put regulations on that. Um, we also say we're going to have this monopoly serve everyone in the county or the city or whatever your, your geographic entity is. And that means they got to serve the people who live really far out, even though you know stretching the wire out to their house is going to be a lot more expensive than the people who live right in town where it's a lot denser. Um, but everyone pays the same rate because we think electricity is an essential service and everyone should have it. So you know there's a lot of sectors like this where we've done that. And What's striking is in a number of the sectors where we've deregulated these dynamics, um, we've actually had real problems and similar dynamics. You know, you look at the electric grid problems in Texas a few years ago with other storm. You look at California, you know, over the last few decades on electricity. Think about why we don't have broadband access in rural areas, but we do have electricity in rural areas. Well, you know, there's a story there. That's that's partly about these obligations that we that we give to people. Um, you know, we used to have more rail. In the middle of the 20th century, than we do now. Just tracks. We had way more tracks around the country than we do now. They got abandoned after deregulation, uh, not something the regulators would allow. But you were allowed to abandon uh, rail tracks because they weren't profitable for you. You didn't want to do it uh, anymore. And that was again, you know, imagine you'd put a factory at the end of that rail line, and then they abandoned the tracks. Well, what happens to your factory, right? Like this is a real problem for for industry. Um, That's why that system existed, so you could reliably have access to these core infrastructural services. So you could invest, you could build, you could start companies, you could set down a life, and really be able to rely on that. And so, to me, this is you know part of what I think is was fun about doing the book was um, you know seeing airlines in some ways as a real case study that we all experience in this broader story of what's happened in a lot of these infrastructure industries that, that honestly haven't covered themselves in glory, uh, in the last few years, whether, you know, you pick your, I don't know if you like Comcast better, or you think the railroads have, uh, or the maritime shipping industry during COVID was, was the great success story. But, you know, there were a lot of problems. And again, it's not the fault of the people who work in these industries. I mean, they're working within the system we have. And, and that to me is the real thing is, you know, I I say this in every interview for airlines, if you're pissed off, like don't blame the people at the counter or your flight attendants, like none of this is their fault, right? They're operating within the system. They're doing the best they can to help you get to where you're going. Don't blame them. Like, that's why you should blame Congress, because, you know, they're the ones who set all the rules under which everyone operates. Yeah. But don't
1: you think that there's a a place to, if if we're pointing fingers at people, I mean, Airline management is, is hardly, uh, you know, we can hardly let them escape, you know, without some attention. I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the demand shock that we saw during COVID. Um, and uh, you're right. People aren't going to stop flying uh, because they need to get from Chicago to Seattle and it's a long drive and all that kind of thing. But I, I you know, to, I, I don't think the airlines care. I mean, they know they've got us, and, and they know just what you said, that huh, they're not going to drive from Chicago to Seattle, so what are they going to do? All right, so maybe they'll, they won't fly American, they'll go fly uh, United. Okay, but eventually they'll probably come back to us. And I mean, during COVID, the, the management crisis, of course, when I flew at the airlines, we all knew the pilots knew all. They could have run everything. We we had all the answers to every single problem that existed. Uh, but um, but seriously, uh, during COVID, we watched that, um, uh, and it happened in in a very short time. Where the airline said, "Oh my gosh, we, we don't have any people flying. Uh, we've got to put these airplanes on the ground because they're too expensive to fly empty." And and uh, oh my gosh, we've got too many people. Uh, employed here. And oh my gosh, let's just, we'll offer all the senior people uh, buyouts and we'll get rid of them. And, 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 you know, it'll be wonderful. And, and then what, six months later, eight months later, they said, "Never mind, (laughs) We made a mistake. Actually, we do need all these people back. And uh, they didn't have enough pilots, enough mechanics, enough uh, ramp agents, enough flight attendants. And now I look at what, you know, we had this news story earlier about uh, uh, FedEx and UPS offering uh, uh, their pilots uh, an opportunity to leave to go fly for one of the regional airlines, which to most pilots is like, wait, I'm going to leave my big jet to go fly a little jet. Um, no, that's not how it works. Um, but ag- again, it's the fact that they seem to have made this decision that, oh my gosh, the demand is down in cargo. uh, We got to do something. So let's get rid of the people and, and, and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. And we'll, uh, but the one thing that, you know, they, okay, maybe that's a management decision, but they are buying new airplanes left and right. And in order to what save, I don't know, you know, 3% on their fuel bill, which I admit, When you're buying as much fuel as, say, United or American or Delta does, that's a significant amount. But what kind of debt are they taking on in order to save that fuel that they might not need to take on if they flew slightly older airplanes and and just said, look, guys, this is the best we can do because we want to provide a good service. But I don't think they care going back to that original point i don't think they give two squats about about what passengers think uh not even look look at brian you're a what are you a gold platinum elite premier member or something at yeah. united uh yeah all of those things um <laughs> all, all, of them, and, all, all, all of them all of them i mean and and the and the problems that he has had and and he does the right thing he knows who to who to you know send a message to and whatever. And they don't listen to him any more than they listen to me, who doesn't even fly United very often. So again, but this is, I'm sorry, I think management has a huge, huge role in this in this chaos.
3: So I agree. I mean, cer- certainly all the things you said, you know, you're thinking about the COVID situation, um, the demand shocks, it's predictable that this is what's going to happen right there's going to be a bounce back in demand and you're going to have shortages right a, a forward looking and thinking executive should have noticed that i mean you know i have this great quote from Barry goldwater uh who you know in the time of deregulation in the 70s said this is exactly what's going to happen in the future is these executives are going to say well we need to cut back on everything then the demand's going to go back up and there's going to be a total disaster i mean he predicted that's what management was going to do in the 70s and here they are i mean it's a perfect encapsulation of what happened in covid there um but i'll quote the very famous airline uh commentator taylor swift (laughs) and and say you know (laughs) players gonna play 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 haters gonna hate 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 management's gonna manage 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 i mean this is what like why should we expect them to do the things that we think are like not what they're gonna do, right? You know? I mean that's that's the great thing about that that Taylor Swift line, right? The player's gonna play, the hater's gonna hate, the airline executive's gonna do what an airline executive is going to do, and and, I, and we can predict what that is. We know what it is and we know that's gonna be the things that are most profitable for them um, and their shareholders. And that's not necessarily the things that are good for communities, passengers, workers, or anybody else. And and that's and that's a real tension uh because that's how our system is set up. And that's the incentives that the people at the very top in these systems face. Now, the things that discipline that are markets, which we've talked about here. And, you know, I'm on the side that thinks that they don't work very well in this context um, and regulation. And, you know, historically, that's the way we've tried to address problems like this is through one of those two solutions. And and I think that's where we need to go again, because we can't trust self-regulation by the airlines to, to do better. They've already failed at that. Well, and but so has
1: Congress, as you said, uh, and... What do they do now? They complain about each other. I mean, they're they're eating their own. They're they're, they're young. I mean, uh, and I, I'm not going to get into blue, red, or purple or whatever. But uh, it's it's sad that we've allowed our system of democracy to to just kind of disintegrate right before our eyes.
3: But but here's one thing I like about airline policy for for Congress is. Whatever your side you're on, wherever you're fr- wherever you are you know, from in the country. Um, in some ways, it actually doesn't really fit our kind of polarized political times. You know If you're from Toledo, Ohio, which is a city and you don't have any air service, you've got good reason to be irritated. If you're from Wyoming, you know, which is uh, uh, not as blue as Toledo, Ohio, I imagine, um, in most places there, you know, you got lots of things to be irritated about. If you're a regular passenger who flies and you're red, blue, purple, whatever green, whatever color you affiliate with uh, politically, um, you can be irritated about, you know, junk fees and dynamic pricing and smaller seats and baggage prices and any number of other things. And so I think there's a nice place and that are, our, our, you know, to bring it back to the title of the book, we, we have this shared misery over this um, and maybe a shared irritation of, of a lot of the parts of this experience that I think hopefully, you know, at least give me hope that this is a place where, you know, the politics will maybe be a little different. But
1: you know, the one thing I always liked is that even on luxury, uh, in luxury travel, if the back end of the airplane is delayed, the front end is just as delayed, even if you paid four times as much for your ticket. That's kind of my
3: uh, pretty evil payback. Shared misery. It's the way to get. Yes. The way yes. To get so you're right. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And Rob, I definitely like to to add um, to Ganesh's point over passengers. Please don't take it out on the frontline workers. Yes. For the most part, they really, really are trying to do their best. And why in the world would you want to yell at a gate agent, for example, because your flight was delayed because of weather, canceled because of mechanical? They're trying to do their best to get you home or to your final destination. And yelling at them only incentivizes them not to do that for you. So don't yell at them.
1: (laughs) Well, but let's be serious uh, that in the last... Ten years, maybe less time. Uh, people have learned to uh, think that they can say anything to anyone at any time about anything because that's their right as an American. They they have free speech yeah, so, and Rob, shut up. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you dumb. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but I mean, and, and so I've seen that at Gates, and uh, it's just. And I've, I've even gone up to people and say, "Hey, you know man, calm down a little bit. you know She's doing the best she can. you know, just back off, and people are like, "What?" But, but again, people just feel like they've got to blow off steam at who's ever right in front of them. And I think that's kind of sad, but anyway,
0: all right, well, to try to put a little bit of a bow on this, uh, what color would the bow be? Would it be Would it be purple? No, it'd be um, airplane geeks blue.
1: Airplane geeks blue. Okay, right, right. I didn't. Okay, yes, I like that.
0: So, Ganesh, you mentioned um, three goals or objectives: no, no more flyover country, no bailouts, no bankruptcies, and fair and transparent prices. Let's just maybe finish up with um, the ways we might ach- be able to achieve those kinds of goals. Now, we can talk about nationalizing the airlines or creating a, a regulated monopoly. Take us through some of those thoughts.
3: Yeah. So, so in the book, what I what I try to do is explore some of the more creative ways we could think about redesigning an airline system. And, and some of these are really to push our thinking and get us to think differently and, and expand how we think about these questions. And so if you really, really, really took the efficiency concerns we talked about uh, earlier seriously and said, you know, this isn't competitive. The most efficient thing is a lot of scale, a lot of network. Then the most efficient thing would be to have one airline. Like they'd have a hundred percent scale, they'd have all the network. That would be the most efficient, actually, right? They wouldn't have to compete with anybody. It'd be they'd have the best anywhere you want to fly. Just that one airline would take you there, and so you know you could imagine a nationalized carrier that would be a publicly run airline. Some countries have had things like this. You could imagine that being private, but there only being one and it being regulated in some ways. Um, both of these have some downsides. I mean, obviously, when there's no competition, you may lose some. Amount of innovation, you might get a sclerotic institution that, that sort of provides worse service over time. Um, and so that's a real downside to, to that system, even if there are some efficiencies in some other ways. Um, another approach I talk about is you know, Australia had for a while a, a policy called the two airline policy. So they had a public airline and a private airline, and the two competed with each other. And in some other areas, what research shows is that when you have this kind of system, a public option competing with the private option, you actually get good competition between both of them. The public ensures that the private option keeps prices down. The private ensures that the public keeps service quality up. And you have a good balance between the two. So that, that's kind of an interesting option as well. Um, but again, radically different than the system that that we have. And so you know, I, I put forward a bunch of creative ideas at the end of the book on ways we could think about things that are a little bit less radical, but would still be big changes. And I'll just, uh, I'll just pick one, you know, um, to get at the geographic problems. I was, I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the ideas um, I have is that we create a sort of NFL style draft and there'd be a bunch of cities that don't really get enough service or service at all. Um, They'd all be put on a list and have some criteria to get on that list. Uh, And then the big airlines would each get draft pick numbers and they'd, you know, you got the first pick, the second pick, third pick, fourth pick, and, And you'd you'd get your order and they'd have to pick from the list, whichever airlines they wanted. And we keep going till the list is all finished. And they'd have to serve those airlines certain number of times a day, certain number of times a week at an affordable, you know, regulated price per mile. And that would be a way to get a lot of geographic access. And, you know, for these airlines that are making money hand over fist, you know, in the good years um, they would just have to, if it's a little bit more costly, they'd have to find that in their system on their own. We're not going to subsidize, we're also not going to set prices. Um, we're just going to say, like, you handle it. You just have an obligation to serve these places. Those rates are regulated because we're worried they don't have enough volume, and we don't want you to price gouge. But you know, do whatever else you want to do and need to do. And so, I think there you'd still have competition on the other other lines, but but in those places, you know, you'd really have at least increased service. So, so that's one idea that I think is, you know, not not as uh, not as radical as you know a two airline system. Um, but would do a lot to think differently about geography than where we are today, which is subsidizing very, very small cities through the, you know, essential air service program. Um, And that program always being on the chopping block and politicians basically wanting to get rid of it in the process.
0: Hmm. It's very thought provoking. And I think, as you mentioned, that's a major objective of this book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. And uh, we've only touched on just a little, a little bit of what's in the book. There are so many, interesting, to me, interesting topics and uh, things to consider and think about. And the, the history of this all is uh, rather eye-opening, I think. So, uh, I mean, I really recommend that those of you listening take, uh, take a look at this. Uh, Ganesh, where can people find the book?
3: You can get it uh, anywhere you like to get books. Bookshop where you can buy from independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you like. You'll you'll be able to find it. It's also on audiobook and ebook, hmm. um, so available in in whatever form and. You know, it's a quick read. It's uh, easy, easy read. I think it's about four hours an audiobook. It's 135 pages. You'll you'll be able to get through it next time you're delayed over Thanksgiving or, or over Christmas uh, holidays. So um, pick it up, p- pick it up on on the way, and and you'll be glad you you had it uh, when you got an hour or two to kill.
0: Did you voice the audiobook?
3: I did not voice the audiobook. They uh, most they, authors don't. They had somebody do it. Um, one day, maybe I'll I'll do that for a book.
0: Yeah, Ganesh, any um, social media presence or anything uh, like that 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 you have that you'd like to make our audience aware of?
3: Yeah, you can feel free to follow me at Ganesh Sitaraman on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. And uh, I'm at at Ganesh Sitaraman on the various other proliferating things that are similar to to that one, too. So uh, find me there.
0: All right. Very good. Well, we really appreciate it. Uh, Ganesh, we could have, we could have gone on for another hour, I think, easily. But uh, instead, we'll just point people to the book and and thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us uh, about what you've discovered and what your thoughts are on this topic. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
2: Yeah, Max, we definitely could have gone on another hour because I didn't even ask my my final question.
0: Oh, I know. (laughs) I know, you cut me off. (laughs) Brian is famous for, just after I wrap it up, having one more question. Oh, go ahead. Let him ask the question.
2: No, no, no. It's actually not a question. It's more of a statement. So as Rob alluded, I have over 5 million miles and over 3 million of those miles are, are, are ununited. So I've flown a bit. And one of the things I've noticed recently, certainly in the past two, three years, is how much service has improved on the plane and it seems like 99% of the time when I have a problem, it's something that I refer to as happening on the ground, either through reservations or catering or baggage issues or a policy that an airline has. But the flight attendants recently have just done an outstanding job. So to me, it's not miserable flying, it's miserable getting the prep or going through TSA, the my opinion: the incompetence of TSA. It's it, it's all the stuff before and after the actual flight that's miserable.
3: That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'll I'll think about that on on the kind of inside versus outside. You know, I think a lot of the things that are miserable about the inside plane experience are determined outside the plane. You know, if you're sitting. Uh, as a five million or three million miler, depending on mm-hmm. on the airline, you know if you're sitting at the front of the plane, things feel pretty good. You got some good space. You know you can sort of wiggle around in your seat. Um, you know if, if you're in the back of the plane and you know didn't spend the extra money to upgrade to Comfort Plus or whatever it's called, depending on your airline, right? Um, you know that, that's a little bit worse. The kind of fees and purchasing experience all happens before you get on the plane. You know, so so a lot of the things I think are predetermined. The, the challenge for people when they are on the plane is when you do have things like small seats you know you get these other things where somebody scoots their seat back and then the person behind them gets really upset and then you've got you know conflict in in the flight over that and and those kinds of things i think are also a problem um but again they're not that's not caused by the flight attendant or anything it's it's the seat design is is gotten smaller over the last few decades and that's it's the thing that's happened. It's gotten smaller. They've made them smaller. The airlines have made them smaller, um, and but again, that's predetermined before before you've bought because you know where you're sitting and you know that that's going to be a problem in a lot of in a lot of flights. So I think the the unpredictable parts are the parts on the ground. I'm surprised you've had as much trouble with with TSA. I assume if you're a, a frequent flyer, you have either TSA PreCheck or Global Entry, and I think those systems I do, you know, are are extremely um, uh, smooth in, in a lot of airports. No, it's it's things like
2: getting things through airport security that I shouldn't, like a half full twelve ounce bottle of water that I picked up in the airport parking lot, and you know, take it through security. Um, having a pocket knife that doesn't get, uh, stopped. Yeah, you know, I was recently on a flight and some flight attendants gave me some of the, the mini airplane bottles and I had 10 of them and they, were so focused on the airplane bottles and wondering why I had them and how I had them, they missed the fact that I had a water bottle. I was supposed to take my computer and iPad out of the my bag, the carry-on bag, and they missed that. And there was, I can't remember one other thing that security missed. And I just don't feel safer. So when I say I've had problems with TSA, it's just, it's no better now than it was 20 years ago. So that's my frustration with TSA. We
1: we didn't the thing we didn't have twenty years ago, even prior to COVID, we we didn't have people acting like children uh, aboard airplanes, and uh, I, I mean we always had kids behind me kicking the seat, and then you'd look around and go, "Ma'am, could you take care of yourself?" You know, all right, all right, but we we have adults, well. They claim to be adults, uh you know doing terrible things to to their fellow passengers and to the uh and to the flight
2: attendants and we never had those kinds of issues before I think we did they just weren't documented or they weren't documented as much as they are today. I don't know I don't remember I remember drunks on board, but
1: I just don't remember people you know beating i mean I watched one of these oh this was during COVID, but, you know, where some passenger got up and, and just hauled off on a, a, a Southwest flight attendant, knocked her in the jaw and knocked her on her butt. And I went, oh my God. I mean, I, but okay. I, I probably am experiencing too much, uh, uh, uh airline, ag- airline aggravation, uh, to, uh, to be sensible tonight. So I'm going to just, all right. I'm taking deep breaths.
0: On to the aviation news. This is from Reuters. NTSB chair says U.S. near-miss aviation incidents, quote, clear warning sign. So the NTSB chair, that'd be Jennifer Hammondy, recently spoke to a U.S. Senate Aviation Committee. Rob, she didn't really mince words on uh, <laughs> on, on what the difficulty is here. For people that
1: subscribe to Politico, uh, they would have heard uh, some some interesting testimony in which the chairman said, you know, basically, guys, we need to get friggin' moving and do something. And, you know, I think she she kind of expressed uh, the, the sentiments of a lot of people that have said, haven't we talked about this near-miss thing? We've been talking about this all year long. We have. And we still don't have any clear direction uh forget that we don't have any answers but there's no clear direction on so we're going to have another meeting but she's very very accurate i mean th- this is a warning sign not just one but there have been many uh like the one we're going to talk about in a little bit about that uh, that accident down in houston and i mean and people are saying wow that's really terrible wow
0: Yeah, we have to do more than just that. And as she says, a clear warning sign that the U.S. aviation system is sharply strained. And she also stated the need for, she put it, quote, more technology for runway and cockpit alerting. We cannot wait until a a fatal accident forces action. But the, uh, the ALPA president, Airline Pilots Association president, Jason Ambrosi was, uh, I guess, also at this uh, at this hearing. He told senators, "quote It's uh, clear the system is under strain, and we need to aggressively pursue solutions to stop these events." Uh, ho- hopefully, they hear the message. They being the you know the committee, of course. The FAA appropriations or reauthorization bill, I guess, uh, is in process, and uh, I I think maybe these statements uh, from the NTSB and and uh, ALPA and NACA and all the others that testified are uh, meant to uh, hopefully influence the reauthorization bill. And maybe we'll see things in there that can help address these issues.
1: However, if if the government does indeed shut down this weekend, uh, one of the problems that it will become even worse is that uh, air traffic controller training will come to a grinding halt yeah. and everybody will be sent home. Uh, because uh, they won't get paid and training stops just at a time when we're already saying we don't have enough controllers. Gee, I think if we go back to 1981, people were saying that. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, didn't mean to digress there. But, but again, if, if the government shuts down because the Congress can't get its act together and work together and get the people's work done, it's it's just making this situation even worse.
0: Of course. Yep. Well, I think, Rob, I think you mentioned earlier that, well, this is reported in the Daily Mail, that American Airlines dangles a $250,000 bonus to lure pilots from FedEx and UPS to fill job shortage that has led to canceled and delayed flights. On the surface of it, it looks like both American Airlines, or more specifically, their regional carrier, PSA Airlines, stands to gain something, and uh, FedEx and UPS also address a problem, that being that American Airlines uh, is seeing staff shortages, and they've had to cancel flights and all that. Meanwhile, the uh, the UPSs and FedExs of the world are seeing reduced demand, and they're cutting flights. So, uh, you know, the the solution that's that's being offered here basically is well let's just it's sh- shift some of the pilots from FedEx and UPS where they're not needed in such numbers over to uh, American Airlines or PSA Airlines. Well, it, it does
1: solve uh, a couple of problems for you know for FedEx and UPS because demand is down. Uh, but but think about uh, PSA, which is a wholly owned under American. Think how much cash uh American Airlines is willing to uh throw into the kitty to get PSA the pilots that it needs um and you know there there were times in the past where the the regionals were simply at the beck and call of the the, the majors and they threw them a few bucks for uh uh you know flying legs and things like that but Americans saying no, we we really need to support these guys because uh, we need that regional feed and they don't have enough bodies to fly. And since these people are going to be out of work anyway, maybe they'd like a little, uh, uh, you know, a little incentive. I mean, <laughs> incentive. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago that we were talking about regional airline pilots starting at, you know, $19,000 a year to fly right seat. And now we're talking about some... some uh, uh, FedEx pilots getting a quarter of a million dollars to go fly a regional jet. I Boy, have we come a long way.
2: Hey, Rob, how about this for an idea and solve the pilot shortage problem kind of the same way the construction industry or the welding industry deals with um, union workers in that you join a union shop and then you work on whatever site is required. And if CRM is so good and pilot training is so good today, does it really matter if you're flying for United or American or Southwest? If you're qualified to fly a 737, why do you have to be an employee of an airline? Why not just be a contract pilot and fly wherever? And that way it makes it so much easier to shift these resources around. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And the
1: one thing that the, uh, the Airline Pilots Association would never buy is that uh, people would lose their seniority at say United or Delta or American or Southwest and well actually Alpha wouldn't care about Southwest but uh, yeah. but you know in the sense that uh, all their benefits all their uh, ability to to bid on a particular line of flying and and that's what we used to do is that every month uh, around the twentieth of the month you'd get your your bid and say okay next month we're going to have this is how flying will be organized. And you'd say, Oh, wow. Oh, I could get that one. And the only thing pilots ever cared about was which one has the most days off. Uh, and, and then you'd say, okay, well, I can't, yeah, I don't have enough seniority to bid that one that has 18 days off, but I bet I could get this one that has 15 days off. And, uh, and, and then, but it's all based on seniority. But if you're bouncing around from carrier to carrier, I I cannot even begin to imagine how they would solve it which of course has nothing to do with solving the business problem that you just raised. I think that's a that's a great uh, that's a great way to do it. Uh but it would it would never it would never fly in the airline
0: industry. Yeah, I can see that being difficult, but yeah, interesting idea. I mean, why not? All right. uh, Here's a follow-up. Previously, we reported on the story where the left wing of a Hawker 850 hit the vertical stabilizer of a Cessna Mustang that was landing on a crossing runway at Houston Hobby Airport. And uh, Rob, we see now that the NTSB preliminary report is out. And it's
1: not real kind to the pilots of the Hawker, uh, which was the uh, crew taking off. They were Operating uh, a charter flight, so Part One Thirty Five, which is supposed to be, you know, uh, more tightly regulated in terms of uh, uh, crew training and that sort of thing, and uh, they found out that the uh, crew of the Hawker got to the end of the runway. They were headed; they were going to take off on the southwest runway, and the, uh, the the citation was inbound to land on a southeast runway, and those two runways met at the center of the airport. And they told the, the Hawker crew, uh, line up and wait, runway 22, which is taxi onto the runway, but don't go anywhere yet. Because, well, and that that was one of the issues. And again, it's always more than one issue that causes these kind this kind of uh, chaos. What the controller is supposed to say is, Hawker uh, 3-2 Golf, line up and wait, runway 22, traffic landing, runway 13 right. And that's supposed to make the pilots go, duh, we can't be going anywhere because we're going to meet those guys at the center of the airport. Well, the controller forgot. He just didn't say that. And as it turned out, the crew of the Hawker somehow thought, line up and wait. They may have taken an instruction for, uh, no, I can't even believe because there wasn't another aircraft waiting to go, but they somehow thought they were cleared to take off so if they'd heard the controllers say traffic landing on a crossing runway it they might have not taken off but the point is they did take off and uh, so they were rolling down the runway and just about the time the uh hawker broke ground uh, they saw the citation on uh, uh you know coming out of the right corner of their eye and went ah! and and whack it was all done um uh, luckily the Hawker was flyable and they came back around and landed. Uh but the other thing that's interesting, because we're going to talk about the technology here, is that the controllers uh in the tower saw this aircraft taking off and went, He's not supposed to be taking off. There's a guy landing on a crossing runway. And they said, You know, Hawker 3-2 golf, stop, 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 traffic on a crossing. And the Hawker crew just happened to be getting some warning lights on the panel about, uh, I think, a trim stabilizer, or something that was making the panel. And they're going, oh, man, this is not good. So they were distracted and they never heard the uh, tower telling them to stop. And actually, it, it's crazy, but it's a good thing that they didn't hear the guy in the tower tell him to stop because if they had... The chances are, as that Hawker came to a grinding halt, he would have stopped, you know, just as they got to that intersection, and, and the two of those airplanes would have probably met and, and it would have been a huge loss of life. So, But, again, who was wrong? Uh, not Citation crew. They didn't have nothing to do with anything here. All they were going to do was just land their airplane. Uh, but the BizJet crew and the controllers uh, – you know, two or three. I don't. It's just, you know, it's that Swiss cheese thing, uh, and and it almost bit them this time. But oh, I, I'm sorry. In the technology part, uh, Rich Santa from the uh, uh, the Controllers Union uh, made an interesting point. Uh, oh, right after that flurry of near misses, uh, uh, you know, uh, runway incursions back in the earlier part of the year, because we all talk about this as DX, the airport surface detection, uh, radar. And it's, it is cool. It It's, it's really great. But Rich said that, uh, do you know how many of those systems are broken in these towers? And, and you know what the biggest problem is, is that FAA can't even get parts to repair some of these ASDX, uh, units in, in the towers. I mean, luckily Houston's was working, but they're not all working everywhere. And again, FAA can't get the parts. Why? I I don't know. Uh, supply issues, uh, or you know, maybe the FAA is not paying its bills. I have no idea. But so that's another piece of the Swiss cheese that that you know, and it's just all this stuff all coming together.
0: That ASDX system is kind of is kind of interesting because it's a, a system that's supposed to track and detect you know activities. On the uh, on on the ground there on the surface, but it uses a variety of uh, different data sources that it pulls together. It uses surface surveillance radar. It uses multi- what they call multilateration, I guess, multilater multilateration sensors located around the airport. It uses airport surveillance radars such as Mode S, uses ADSB sensors, and also the terminal automation systems where where it gets flight plan data.
1: Sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. But if it's broken, they can't get the parts. It's like a uh, uh, kind of a you know pink elephant, I guess, or something. But um, so again, it's just it's just sad. I mean that you know we're everybody's talking about the the lack of, you know, the, the reduced number of controllers and, and the training issues and the government shutdown, but nobody is talking. I mean, after Rich Santa made that statement six or eight months ago, that story kind of came and went, well, fell right off the radar and nobody even picked up on it. I So it's, I, how do you get people interested enough to deal with the problems of, that that we're facing, I I don't know. I you know, Ganesh said it was, you know, Congress. I, good luck getting this stuff fixed with Congress.
0: All right. Well, one way that you can address issues sometimes, or at least something that the FAA can do, is form an aviation rulemaking committee. And we see that the FAA has named a pilot mental health aviation rulemaking committee. And this, uh, this committee is to provide recommendations on breaking down the barriers that prevent pilots from reporting mental health issues to the FAA. This is a topic that we've talked about extensively. But our, our new FAA administrator, Mike Whitaker, says, quote, mental health care has made great strides in recent years, and we want to make sure the FAA is considering those advances when we evaluate the health of pilots.
1: It's a, a problem that has been around for uh, many decades, and uh, it's always been <clears throat> something that nobody talks about because every pilot knows that if, I mean, and, and as my my wife, as everybody knows, is a, is a shrink, and, and she asked me just the other night, so if you are a pilot and you're taking your medical, do you have to report if you're even in therapy with a with a therapist about i said yeah you're supposed to and and she said but that's supposed to help the pilot with whatever the anxiety or the whatever's going on in their." Life. i said yeah you would think so and she said well what do pilots do i said they don't tell anybody because they know that if mental health the, the phrase mental health pops up anywhere they could be in for some serious, uh, serious problems. And uh, uh, then people say, well, but your health records are all private, right? Nobody's going to see that. No one's going to use that information. Oh, really? You you trust the government never to release <laughs> data about you? And pilots are going, oh, yeah, give me a break. So you know what? They just don't tell anybody and and so pilots are flying many of them are flying using uh uh medications that probably wouldn't get past the FAA now we don't want to see people uh, you know taking Xanax before they fly because they're nervous and they're falling asleep but i mean some of these medications have proven to be very beneficial in in helping people kind of keep their their wits about them in a, in a you know very uh, dynamic, uh, chaotic world because pilots suffer from depression or anxiety and, and other things. Um, and it's not right that they can't uh, seek help because they might lose their jobs. I mean, I, and I guess the, the story I always tell is the same, that uh, 40, 50 years ago, the problem was not medications. It was, uh, I'm sorry, it was not drugs. It was alcohol. And, and we got to a point in this country, not just aviation, but in this country in general, that if you had an alcohol problem, you could report it and you would be allowed in most cases to enter a treatment program and, and your job didn't automatically just disappear because employers and labor unions and everything said, look, these people are too important. Let's give them the help they need and bring back a productive employee. And, and it happened to a lot of pilots. There are a lot of pilots that, uh, that were out because of alcohol problems and, and came back to the cockpit. Once, once they, uh, uh, once they uh, had the, uh, I won't say the cure because alcoholics claim, you know, they're never cured. They're just, you know, they're, they're free of alcohol at this point but we've never been able to make that leap with drugs. And uh, but maybe it's because the uh, the drugs have been coming so fast and so furiously over the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, I mean, all you got to do is watch the news at night and you get, you know, two or three advertisements for uh, new drugs to solve whatever the problem is that ails you and the, the benefits last about 4 seconds in the ad and and the side effects take the other 28 seconds to uh, to explain but but anyway there there it's so it's it's about time i really hope mike Whitaker is able to get this kind of movement going because jennifer homedy from the uh, ntsb has been on board with this too and it, we we we've, we've got to deal with this
0: yeah well, we'll put uh, some some links in the show notes that uh, relate to this. There's a, a Reuters article, but we've also got the FAA announcement on them appointing the rulemaking committee. Uh, we also have, uh, there was a DOT Office of Inspector General report uh, that was back in July, pilot mental health challenges. We have a link to that. And there's also a FAA fact sheet on pilot mental health oversight. We'll have all of those in the show notes. And then just finally on this, um, the ARC, the uh, rulemaking committee will include uh, medical experts and aviation and labor representatives. But the uh, the members to be appointed haven't been announced yet. And the, the charter for the rulemaking committee hasn't been finalized yet. So those are coming up. And then the uh, final news story from CNBC, United Airlines tweaks frequent flyer program to reward credit card spending. Here we go. This is another topic that kind of keep, uh, keeps coming up, seems like every week. United says they're not going to change the overall requirements for elite frequent flyer status next year in 2024, but instead they're going to give customers 25 qualifying points for every $500 they spend on co-branded credit cards. And United is also going to lift caps on credit card spending that can qualify towards elite status.
2: Brian. Yeah, so again, this turns into a financial or a revenue recognition program instead of a frequent flyer program. And it seems like they, I've been saying this for a while, and it seems like United's finally gotten on board. Now, as far as a program goes, I don't see this as that big of a change because the quantity of uh, dollar spend they have to get to get these PQP, PQP points is so low. I really don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. What it's going to do, though, is probably enable a lot of people to achieve silver or gold status if they spend a lot of money on the United branded uh, credit card. I don't think it's really going to have any effect on the Premier Platinum and 1K flyers, uh, simply because the requirements at that level are so high. I, mi- I might be wrong on that and I could end up having an awful lot more competition in my, uh, complimentary upgrades. Uh, you know, like for example, on my flight back from Florida, I'm currently 11th on the upgrade list.
1: But don't they know who
2: you are? Yeah, yeah exactly. They know exactly who I am. Yeah, that's, that's why right. I'm eleventh. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny too. I, 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 in the old days, I maybe prior prior to COVID. I, I was a, a, a real fan of Southwest airlines and, uh, I said, nah, they're, they're my guys. I really, because a lot of folks I worked with at Midway eventually went to Southwest. And so I felt a little camaraderie there. And, but, you know, since this chaos of everybody's changing everything uh, now, I, I, you know, I just don't think the airlines care one iota about me at all and what I buy or don't buy. And it's just you, Rob, it's only you. Yeah I yeah it's like Brian feels about you know United I, they've got his number 11 <laughs> you know
2: so no but Rob I think you're wrong in that they care exactly what you buy they just want you to charge it on their credit card that's true that's that's what they care about they don't care if you fly on them that's, they just want you absolutely. to spend money yeah yes. they
0: make more money on your on your spend yeah, than your true flying.
2: yeah and that's why during covid what united's um Put up as collateral their frequent flyer program, and I think they got five was a five billion dollar loan, or I know some astronomical amount that they got on the value of their frequent flyer program, which was significantly higher than the value of the airline itself.
0: Bizarre. All right, what's up with the geeks, um, Rob? We oh, we heard some more sad news this week.
1: Yeah, another uh, another of the uh, uh, old time or the. <laughs> early the uh, original uh us astronaut uh, uh contingent uh, passed on frank borman uh was the apollo 8 mission commander and uh he was uh, uh mission commander on the first uh flight that actually circled the moon uh, i don't remember the year i remember it was probably in the what 65 64 65 i don't know you know, that's what we need Micah here for, because uh, he knows that stuff backwards and forwards. But uh, I, I was uh, and the reason this hit me is that I had a chance to meet Frank Borman uh, for a. Uh, I was doing a story for uh, Aviation International News. It's got to be 20 years ago. Uh, and they flew me out to Albuquerque to meet him. And we sat and had lunch at this little goofy airport where his hangar was. It was like, whoa, this is really cool. Hmm. I mean, as I was sitting there at lunch, I still remember that. Wow, I'm I'm having lunch with one of the Apollo astronauts. I mean, not just, you know, a a pilot. He's one of the, he went to the moon. You know, I thought, wow. So, of course, I ask all of these guys because I've had the opportunity to meet uh, a number of them over the years. Uh, uh, You know, additional Frank Borman, I met uh, uh, Gene Cernan and uh, uh, Jim Lovell because uh, Jim Lovell lives here in the Chicagoland area. And I always ask them the same, uh, Charlie Precourt, another one, but uh, I always ask them the same stupid question. So just when when they count down three, two, one ignition, and you feel that thing starting to rumble and roar. And, you know, there's like 87 million pounds of thrust under your butt. And it's just, start- what does it feel like? And, and, uh, uh, Gene Cernan gave me the best one. He's, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? Guy. Yeah, it was, it was pretty neat. Yeah, it was great. And, but it's, it's like people, I think that, that fly airplanes for a living and people that, uh, really would like to learn to do that or, or recognize the, uh, the complexity of, of the training involves say, wow, it must be so cool to fly an airplane and, you know, go up and, and you go, yeah, it's pretty, we take it so much for granted. And uh, I think the astronauts kind of uh, would get to that point. Well, at least they got to that point when some stupid uh, space geek like me asked them a, a dumb question, <laughs> like, what does it feel when all the, yeah. you know, the, 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 rocket starts to rumble. Uh, but Anyway, so
2: and 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 Rob, Apollo 8 was December 21st, 1968.
3: 68. But, okay, yeah, well, that's
1: I do I, I was very young, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> I uh, thank you for uh, clearing that up, Brian. Um, uh, but you know, uh, but uh, so i sorry to see another one go and rest in peace there, uh, uh, Mr. Borman, who also I must admit, uh, was the CEO of Eastern Airlines, uh, after uh, he Great. was uh, the uh, asked did his astronauting could you say someone did some astronauting sure or uh, i guess you'd be space traveling uh, but
2: and i think he could really be credited with the uh, start of the success of airbus because he placed the order that's for true. a very large order for the a300 mm. that's
1: that's very true
2: yes. right and really kicked them it gave them a good a good start yeah that's right
0: all right, well, Brian, you're, uh, you're still in Florida, and uh, how'd, how'd the weekend go? Yeah, why are you in Florida, Brian? Well, I'm still here.
2: I'm, I'm uh, meeting with Mama Coleman, which is fun, and actually was joined yesterday with our main man, Micah. So he's in Florida as well, we got together, and we had a little meetup and had some listeners stop by, and that was an awful lot of fun. And I was really kind of sad because one of our listeners, listener Nikki, who's contributed some uh, segments to us a while ago, she was not able to fly in. And I think she made a really smart decision on not showing up at the event, but it was weather related. So I, I'm not sure if everyone knows, but she has purchased a 152 after getting her license. And uh, the weather wasn't great, there were IFR conditions and the equipment that she had i can't remember if her plane certified to fly at it's either 700 750 feet and minimums were at 500 and although there was a i think a very brief window where she could have taken off but just the safety margins weren't there and she made a really smart decision by staying on the ground instead of being in the air wishing she was on the ground
0: yeah
1: <laughs> that's too I bad that
0: feeling Nikki is cool.
1: Well, okay, but let's let's get to the really important part. What was the pizza like?
2: It was not New York pizza, but for Florida it was actually very good. For
0: Florida. Yeah, for Florida. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I've ever had pizza in Florida.
2: Yeah, coming being born and raised in New Jersey and spending so much time in New York, I really am a pizza snob.
0: Yeah. That's real pizza. And not this Chicago stuff either, this deep dish stuff. No, nah, that's, that's not pizza. really Actually, I don't
2: right. like the deep dish either. I like
0: I like
1: the thin <laughs> the thin crust. That's but thin's the
0: best. Yeah, and on the
2: podcast that Mike and I do, we had a pretty good discussion over Chicago deep dish pizza and how it's not really pizza. So <laughs> people can listen into that.
3: The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australia news desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Playing Crazy Down Under podcast.
4: Dateline, 12th of November, 2023.
1: Ta-da! Well, g'day, folks. Welcome
5: back to the Australia Desk for this week's episode 774. Well, Grant, um, you've been a little busy in the two weeks. Did we say it's only going to be a week? Anyhow, the last two weeks. <laughs>
2: yes.
5: <laughs> so you took you, you took the trip to Sydney, mate, and uh, you've been up at a uh, big defence conference, and um, it's mostly to do with the Navy, but um, I'm just wondering, mate, um, Indopac, was there anything there with an aviation... You know, twinge to it.
4: Yeah, there was uh, Indo Pacific 2023. It's a every two year event, and uh, it is to Navy and maritime as Avalon is to Air Force and aviation. Although you're not seeing so much in the way of war birds and, uh, you know, general aviation. Oh, it's, uh, how boring. I know, right. But uh, it is uh, it is big and there was a lot there. Uh, Sentinel boats from Tasmania had their uh, 1200 model on display, as did the Whiskey Project had one of their boats on display. So these are uh, rapid boats, like you know, probably carrying anywhere of around 12, 14 people on board. Some of them can have Zodiacs on them. So these are designed to get people from the uh, capital ship out to a vessel they're inspecting, things like that. So, you know, those were there. But on the aviation side, yeah, there was a a stack of drones. There was Seahawks, uh, not physically present, but Lockheed Martin were happy to talk about uh, about the Seahawks, uh, the Romeos, of course. There was also um, a lot of uh, information about the Aegis or Aegis system, um, shield of the fleet now being called shield of the Pacific, uh, because of uh, the number of navies, not just the US around the Pacific that are operating it. And yeah, that was that was a good discussion I had with one of the guys there that'll come out on Australian Defense Magazine podcast. So yeah, it was it was good, but it was of course, it was mostly focused on maritime, but a lot of autonomy, uh, a lot of drones. Uh, I've got some recordings with Anduril, with L3 Harris, with Sentinel boats, all on that autonomy side of things.
5: One of the really interesting things I found there, and it, there's been a lot of talk about this over the years, ever since these particular ships were launched, and that's to do with the HMAS Canberra and the HMAS Adelaide, which of course are our, you know, to use the term Harrier carriers, even though they don't operate, uh, they don't <laughs> operate those, uh, they're LHDs. Now we only yep. operate helicopters off of those, but there's always been talk around because they, you know, they were based on a Spanish design, I believe. They've got a big ski ramp on the front, and gee whiz, could we ever operate F thirty uh, five Bs off there? Now uh, it's uh, been some talk in the defence community over the years about that. But uh, here's a little grab from the uh, doorstop that you recorded, Grant, with the uh, defence minister uh, Richard Miles and the uh, chief of the Royal Australian Navy Vice Admiral Mark Hammond, and uh, well, judge for yourself what their uh, plans are in that regard.
2: Admiral, there's been discussion about uh, redoing the decks of the Canberra class to handle F-35s. Uh, is this a pipe dream?
1: Uh, is it possible? Is it something you're discussing? It's not something I'm looking at. Thank you.
4: Well, that was a pretty categorical nope. <laughs> yeah,
5: and I mean, the thing is, I mean, it'd be really cool if we were, we were operating F-35Bs off there, but I mean, the... the cost not only to modify the ships but to procure those extra aircraft would be astronomical. And the question is, of what benefit would there be to Australia if we did that? And the unit cost of those aircraft is, what, 80 to to $100 million, let's say, each. You'd have to have enough for an embarked squadron on each ship. You'd probably have to have another squadron back, you know, uh, on the shore for training, maintenance, that sort of stuff. You're talking a lot of aircraft, and as mm-hmm. cool and wonderful as it would be, I just—I mean, I'd love to see it happen, but I just don't think it would. And obviously, the minister uh, and the uh, the navy chiefs—well,
4: they've got other ideas for those ships. Correct, mate. And it would—you'd have to beef up the uh, the deck because the deck's not strong enough and survivable of the uh, heat being put out by the F thirty-five B. You'd also have to uh, create space for fuel for the aircraft, for armaments, things like that. There's a lot of work that would need to be done to the existing LHDs. And to be honest, you'd almost need to buy another one. Uh, Would probably be more effective. But, yeah, it would look – just ask the British how essential it was to have those Sea Harriers during the Falklands way back in the 80s. Uh, Honestly, if the the Argentines had just held off, if Galtieri had uh, waited another three or four months – The last British carrier would have been in being scrapped, so actually being torn apart at the time. When Gattieri and the Argentines did their invasion, the the carrier was their last carrier was actually on the way doing its final voyage before scrapping. So, yeah, ask the British how important that is. Mm,
5: Yeah. Anyway, we can always dream about that stuff, but uh, really interesting. And of course, that content will be coming out on the Australian Defence magazine podcast uh, in coming weeks grant um i guess we'll just flick to the second story in our list here actually the third one since we're still talking about f-35 so uh, let's talk about <laughs> rosebank engineering they're doing some really cool stuff
4: uh they certainly are mate uh, rosebank engineering has announced the activation of its f-35 lightning 2 wheels and brakes repair depot at its bayswater facility in melbourne and now
5: bayswater uh, and rosebank now grant that always makes me think of this
2: the All-Australian Safety Helmet.
5: Oh, God, I tell you what, Grant, Stack Hats. <laughs> that uh, Anybody who's listening from uh, this part of the world that listens to that ad and was a teenager at the time that we were would be shuddering because uh, Stack Hats were bicycle <laughs> helmets made by a different Rosebank Engineering, but I remember them being in Bayswater, which is east of Melbourne, but uh, not the <laughs> same. Imagine that, bicycle helmets to F-35, uh, you know, maintenance. How cool would that have been?
4: <laughs> well, you never know. We, we could always reach out and find out. <laughs> oh,
5: crikey. I tell you what, um, anyone who wore a stack hat back in the 80s, uh, before bicycle helmets were compulsory here in Victoria, was labelled a nerd. Mind you, Grant, I, I was a nerd. I was quite proud of being a nerd.
4: I bet you were too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Devo, uh, Kraftwerk, that was my theme growing up, mate. Well, let's face it, we're still nerds anyway, Grant.
5: Let's, let's <laughs> Totally, and nerdy about aircraft. <laughs> in fact, well, let's nerd out on this, Grant. The Republic of Singapore Air Force have just uh, celebrated 30 years operating their training detachment out of RAF Base Pierce in
4: Western Australia. That's right, mate. Uh, formerly flying uh, the CI Marchetti S211 jets, and uh, these days they're flying PC-21 trainers. Oh, look, very similar to the ones we're flying, and uh, my understanding is that a few Rafis went up and flew in the PC-21s with the Singaporeans before the, the Raf decided to buy them. Funny that.
5: Yeah, now of course, uh, for those are not familiar, Raf-based Pierce is uh, just northeast of the city of Perth in Western Australia, and as Grant mentioned, a lot of, uh, a lot of training gets done over there, and it, let's face it, uh, Singapore is a very small place and very congested airspace, and uh, you know, it would be very challenging to do a lot of uh, military type training, particularly this type of lead in training over there. But coming across to Perth, where there's plenty of open airspace to do that sort of stuff, uh, was a pretty sound decision, I always thought, back when they made it. And uh, it's really a testament uh, to the way things run there at Pierce that uh, 30 years later it's still going.
4: Uh, indeed, mate. But uh, they're also here in Australia, the Singaporeans, doing their uh, CH 47 training, the Chinook. They've got a a training group at Oakey in Queensland. And so they come and join the Army Aviation guys there and do their Chinook training. They also quite regularly join us for exercises uh, up at Shoalwater Bay in northern Queensland. There's lots going on and uh, Australia and Singapore work very closely together to help provide the uh, spaces that they need for doing their training. As you mentioned, it's a small island nation, and we're a very large island nation, so it's great that the two of us are working well together.
5: Yeah, and of course, uh, having visited Singapore recently, and I may have just accidentally gone past their Air Force Museum, Grant, while I was there. And uh, people ought to congratulate my wife for being so understanding and actually coming with me. <laughs> oh wow! Su- suffering while I nerded out on aircraft, but that's yeah. a. If you're ever in that part of the world, that's It's only a small little museum they've got there, but it's it's very very cool. I'd highly recommend visiting.
4: I suspect that the payback was lots of funky food and uh, lots of fashion spaces. Lots of shopping. Well, she got her own back when we were in Thailand this year, that's for sure, (laughs) shopping-wise. My goodness. Yes, I remember seeing the photos of, of you looking slightly bald while well, there was Kathy going through reams and reams and reams of material.
5: Is there any wonder I have a heart condition these days, Grant? Anyway. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 zang. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no worries. Well, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. Grant, um, I'm going back to finishing this delicious lunch that I know you want to lambast me about.
4: Come on, tell the listeners. He's having, what is it? It's tuna and tuna noodles. Tuna and noodles. Tuna and noodles. Delicious. Yeah, Noodle Boy. All right. You just fish are friends, not food, all right?
5: Well, they're friends to me this week. Anyway, until next (laughs) week,
4: I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm crying over spilt tuna. (laughs) That's Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Fish are friends, not food.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the issue with the F-35 on the on the aircraft carriers, of course, they're talking about the F-35B, which is the Stovall version, which has a lift fan uh, behind the cockpit, and then the engine nozzle rotates down to uh, 90 degrees to point straight down. And most aircraft carriers aren't designed to have a uh, military fighter jet engine exhausting directly onto the onto the carrier deck. So I think that's probably the um, the issue that they're talking about there.
2: Yeah, it's like having a giant torch on a sheet of metal.
0: Right, exactly. When it's
2: not designed
0: for it. Exactly. All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank especially our guest, Ganesh Sitaraman. And be sure to take a, a look at his book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Um, As uh, Ganesh mentioned, you can find that anywhere you find books. And you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode uh, are available at the shortcut link, airplanegeeks.com slash 774 for the episode number. And our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob Mark. Anything in closing? No,
1: I think I've blabbed enough tonight. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have to uh, to cut some of that. You just don't want to get me started on airline customer service stuff. I just, I'm sorry. I, I just, I lost my mind. I, I don't know what happened. Maybe, well, you know, the mental health thing we were. Okay, hey Brian, he's doing it again. Yes, let's not just talk about it at all. So, <laughs> No, they will find me at the usual places, and it's been fun again tonight
0: uh always enjoy having you rob um i'll especially look forward to taking out the 15 minutes or so that i can take out and shorten (laughs) this interview
1: did i embarrass poor ganesh uh, no 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 okay i okay
2: no rob you just embarrassed yourself that's Uh,
1: okay well at least (laughs) i'm i'm kind of holding up my end of the embarrassment scale
0: very good and brian coleman Good to see you again. How are you? And well, not how are you, but I mean, <laughs> where can we find you online?
2: Oh, the best place to send me a note is brian at the airplane geeks.com. And you can check out the podcast Micah and I are doing at the journey is the
0: Very good. And if you want to see where I hang out, well, you can just go over to 30,000 feetcom and that lists all the social media places where you can find me. And so we'll ask all of you to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.
2: at night Fly safely. And thanks for listening.
1: See, and I think, too, that what you said before about uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, yeah. Crap. I'm sorry. I had a great thought. It just flew in one side of the headphone and it departed. Wait, I can still grab up. I'm sorry. It got away from me. Uh, Max, you were going to say something. It'll, it'll come back to me. I'm curious. Did you do the narration on your own book? That's what I just asked, Rob. Oh, duh. I'm sorry. (laughs) Pretend I didn't say that. No, oh, that'll go on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs>